Welcome to King Size, a Stephen King podcast for obsessives by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Constant listeners, welcome back. Welcome back to Pet Cemetery Part Two. Uh, as we, uh, as it says <laughs> on the tin, look at Part Two of Pet Cemetery. I mean, it really is. We like to keep things simple here at King Size. Why make it more complex than it needs to be? So we are going to be casting our eye on the second half of King's masterpiece. Uh, and of course, when I say we, it's not just myself. I am, as always, joined by my co-pilot and the brains and the beauty that is Simon Balkan. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry. Um, I feel a bit untidy, a bit, 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 bit dirty here. I'm just having to sort of wipe a little bit of dirt off my uh my hands and my my sleeves so uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that's okay i've been uh well i've been i can't really tell you what i've been i'm sorry about that i just um i just somewhere where i'm uh, got a bit of dirt under my fingernails sorry about that um anyway i'll just go and wash my hands and i'm sure everything will be perfectly all right in a day or so oh yeah well, absolutely yeah i mean you look a little flustered but i guess you know there's some, some manual work i mean you have recently yeah i mean that that interest in the allotment and gardening i mean it's a wonderful thing to see um and i can't wait to see uh what blooms as a result of what whatever it is that you've uh you've planted Thank you. Yes, I've been doing some uh, some experimental gardening. Ah, great. Well, you always were a maverick, weren't you? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. why be traditional? Uh, oh, yes, I like to buck against the trend. Does yes. it work? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I look forward to seeing what uh, what you're growing on your allotment, but I take it we're not talking your standard run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, squashes, potatoes, or I'm getting the sense it might be something a uh, a little different than that. Yes, yes. I've even gone to the trouble of um, giving some of the little little uh, mounds in my uh, allotment uh, little names. Ah. So, yeah, there's uh, there's Fifi over there. Yeah, that one. Um, there's uh, oh, there's a little Muffet. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that one, that one. There's a a, a, a little a little fox I found by the side of the road. I'm one of the very few people out there gardening in this sense. I, yes. I, I think I don't know if it will catch on, but um, I'm hoping that people will be able to see some of the results. Yeah, and um, and be encouraged themselves, perhaps. Yeah, well, well, good as always, man. You know, a pioneer and helping the community at large. Sai, I mean, the philanthropist that you are, you are, but now just of the garden variety. Yeah, just doing my bit. Well, we have a certain uh, friend who's doing their bit for uh, for, for the king size community because uh, this weekend, Si, it was um, yeah, we had a nice little bit of uh, traction on social media, should we say? Yes. What was uh, what was that all about? Well, I mean, uh, you, I happened to you know put something out on uh, Twitter because it is still called Twitter because I will not call it uh, X because that means uh, <laughs> that on some level I have to agree with uh, Elon Musk uh, and I can't do that. So on Twitter, uh, remember when we spent about a year in Derry? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, that's coming well, back to me, yes. That's coming back, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, as, as we know, some things, you know, kind of you can't quite wash the dirt out from under your hands, wash the stain away of the Derry stain. Well, you and I, as we know, spent about eight or nine months with our listeners in Derry, uh, making sure uh, no balloon was unturned, uh, every street was walked, 
Uh, every nook and cranny was looked into. Um, nothing barren there. Was down. Yes, every manhole cover uh, lifted, uh, you know, whilst you and I held hands tightly, ready to then be able to run away. Um, so what I just thought, well, look, let's just remind the world that if they're, uh, you know, at a at a loss this weekend and it's a wet, rainy weekend uh, and they fancy some comfort with us in Derry, that there were about 14 hours worth of episodes to listen to uh, of our IT coverage. And... Our brilliant, brilliant member of the King Size family, Stacey, who uh, is doing all of our wonderful artwork, had come up with this incredible uh, design, this incredible artwork of uh, little Georgie, the back of little Georgie, uh, balloons in the sewer. And the most scary thing of all, of course, was a King Size picture. You and I, our faces, our mugshots on the on the wall of the uh, sewer. That was the real horror show. Well, yes, but it's exactly the kind of freakish, devilish terror you'd expect to find on a wall like that, isn't it? Well, <laughs> exactly. Pennywise does mani- manifest himself as, you know, those things that are the scariest. And clearly our mugshots, uh, you know, as many a casting director can, a- can attest to, uh, are, are, are that indeed. So we put that up on Twitter um, and then in a perfect uh, car being a wheel and all of that, just as I was uh, getting into bed that night, uh, happened to receive a message from another member of the King Size family, uh, the person through which all goodness and light shines out, a certain Kim C. And uh, Kim wrote to me and just said, um, you've been retweeted by King. Congratulations. And then a certain Stephen King retweeted or reposted or whatever the lingo is, whatever it is, he basically said, hey, world, check this out. Um, um, Hey, <laughs> uh, what? Sorry. Uh, I'm, a, I'm yeah. a little behind the curve here. Um, I'm still trying to um, process... Okay. Uh, wow. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, but the, the, I, I hadn't really taken this in yet. Um, come back to me when we're doing the next episode or something. I'm sure I'll be a lot more uh, um, articulate. But uh, yeah, for the well, moment, I'm what? Yeah, your your gabba is well and truly um, flasted, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we're really going to have to get our shit together if we ever got him on the show, because uh, if we ever had an audience with the king, <laughs> we, we got to just get all this out. You and I will have to meet online, I think, about the, maybe three days in advance. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, I was going to say three hours or 30, but no, three oh. days in advance and just shake it all out, man. We just got to shake it out, shake it off. So that we can just be completely like, yeah, whatever's man. Yeah, fine. All yeah, right. we can't have any of that mumbling, bumbling, gasping for air I just did. No. Cool, very professional, yeah. very smooth. So you're some kind of writer? Yeah, okay, big deal. Yeah, yeah. fine. We're just gonna ask you, you know, have a chat with you as one does. It's uh, it's no biggie, yeah. But enough of that, because we've got a we've got a task to do, Si. We've got a you know, we've spoken about gardening, we've spoken about your allotment, we've spoken about uh, Stephen King and the the power of the of the retweet. But we gotta we gotta now cast our um cast our eyes over Pet Cemetery, because we got a job to finish off here. Okay. And uh we got some heavy lifting and some heavy work to do right now. Yes, and it seems to me that we have to do it under Quite a, well, a heavy cloud, you know, a very dark cloud. It's casting a real shadow. It's like some of the the skies over London over some of the weekend, very sort of heavy and, and, and brooding and look like they're about to throw down half a ton of rain at any moment. But they're just making the whole atmosphere very, well, um, sinister, I would say. And swarthy. Yes, you know, you know that means left-handed, right? It's what swarthy, sinister. <laughs> you are, you are, you are one of the great lefties of the world, aren't you? 
Well, I'm not quite up there with um, Julianne Moore, Morgan Freeman, Barack Obama, Emma Thompson and Lady Gaga yet. But we're heading in that direction. Well, it, that's that's good company to keep. I mean, it seems like, you know, the lefties are that, that's a strong list. Macca, Macca was a lefty, uh, slapping the base with, with, with the left palm. Um, Bill Gates. And of course, the, the greatest living uh, man, uh, Keanu Reeves. Keanu, Keanu is a lefty. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Uh, Aristotle. Wow. Aristotle and Albert Einstein was a lefty as well. Mozart, Beethoven. Oh my gosh. This is a uh, De Niro, Willis. Martina Navratilova, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. Mark Twain. Marky Mark. <laughs> Lewis Carroll, Neil Armstrong. And not only Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin as well. How crazy is that? So Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, both lefties. Uh, David Bowie, Jennifer Lawrence. And it is true that the brains and bodies of lefties may operate differently from those of right-handed people. So your brain and your body works very different, side. That is true. That I would not dispute. Do you know, Sai, how much of the population is left-handed? How, how much of that brilliant, wonderful list of which, of course, you head up uh, the list? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe maybe you and Barack, it's tied, but, and yeah. Keanu Reeves, of course. Um, yeah. The last time I checked, we're like less than 10% of the population. Yeah, that's right. 10%, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely the one. It's, it's certainly a right-handed world we live in. I won't read out the bit about it's linked to a risk of mental health problems. Yeah. But it does offer an advantage in sport, apparently. So there we go. And it makes for better fighters. Those are two disciplines I may have overlooked. Oh, well, there we go, yeah. Apparently it goes back to the idea, side that lefties have a physical advantage over righties. In violent societies, researchers theorise left-handers benefit from their unexpected left hook. So, there uh, we go. Right, so if you're a southpaw in boxing... Yeah. Yeah, you're less likely to be... Um, have trained for it. Yeah. In any pub quiz, you know, if you go, right, name name the top your top three lefties, or what percentage of the population is a lefty? We, as always, have got you covered. We live to serve. We do. But I, I'm sensing, Si, that we're almost a little maybe scared, a little reluctant. We're, 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 we're kind of dancing around this topic of part two of Pet Cemetery, and, and we we got to we gotta go there. You, you may say that we're reluctant, but I've got to go and do the washing up. There's so little, if indeed any, light in this, in this second half of, of, of the novel at all. I mean, I found it almost not um, not irredeemable, but there, there's there, no, no, there's no sort of heroic um, last action or anything to sort of really save um, anybody. Um, it's just it, 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 something horrific happens, and then it gets worse. It keeps getting worse, um, and. There's this this path that uh, Lewis Creed is on that um, he doesn't seem to be able to tear himself off. And I was always, always fascinated to um, hear your thoughts on this as a parent and reading some of the um, the essays that have been written by people who are who are parents and just how it how it strikes them because yes, as you say. Stephen King has killed another one of his darlings. He didn't spare the, a couple of the um, the brothers in Salem's Lot or Tad Trenton, and now he's done it again. So, what did what did what did you make of this? Really, really, um, I say dark. You know, there's this supernatural element to it. Of course, there is, but by the same token, it's really based on something horrifically every day what did what, what did you make of it the punch that it delivered was uh, just sucker punch completely ellie carried the picture but she didn't talk much 
It was as if the death of her brother in the road in front of the house had shocked away most of her vocabulary. Basic functions, the ability to talk, the ability to think, the ability to exist, all of that is just stripped away by this family who are in shock. And as the reader, just completely, completely in shock. Um, And King capitalises on that by making us, he does that whole chapter where it's as if it was a dream (laughs) Mm -hmm. as if you know hang on a minute everything's okay this didn't really happen your fingers didn't just brush the back of gage's jacket you managed to grab him and this was just a, a, a night sweat that terror that any parent has of you know, the worst possible thing happening, which is, you know, your child dying or your child having an accident. Um, and sometimes an overactive imagination goes there. I think any, show me any parent that hasn't had that horrible nightmare or that fear or that worry. Um, but then thankfully, you go, oh, for most of us, it's, you know, just a, a horrific uh, nightmare. Um, that hasn't come true. And here, you know, this, he almost convinced me that actually maybe it hadn't happened. Maybe he had captured him. So King is puts us in this place of real turmoil and real vulnerability (laughs) and then, and then plays with us (laughs) and makes it even crueler. Um, Yeah. Cause he gives, he gives you that whole uh, sequence, as you say, of what Gage's life was then subsequently like after yeah. having had this near miss um, and, a, and, a, and a bit of an injury. But then he goes on to, you know, to to college and to, to the Olympics um, and this, you know, this, this wonderful life. But you also know that um, despite this, this wonderful uh, existence, you know that it, all this didn't happen and didn't come to pass. And similar to when we spoke, uh, you know, did our episode on Billy Summers, that whole part about the power of fiction to be able to rewrite your story, Mm. to be able to rewrite your narrative any way you want it to. And I think there's almost the catharsis there because we have that incredible scene at the end of part one. One of the most beautiful things he's written, the kite scene which is so gorgeous Mm. and Gage and Louis are just so tightly connected. Um, And and then this happens immediately afterwards. You know, we know that was the last happy day of Louis Creed's life. And I can't think of a harder read for me with King than Mm. than this. Mm. Uh, I really can't. The horror here is even harder because it is every day. Yes, I think I think Pet Cemetery is one of the um one of the main sources of evidence that somebody accusing Stephen King of being a horror writer would use. You know, you 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 talk about the Shawshank Redemption and you talk about um the body, um talk about 112263 and you could show uh, Billy Summers more recent go look at all this look at this body of work this isn't all this isn't all horror Stephen King is not a horror writer and then they the prosecution would would wave Pet Cemetery and you go damn it they've got a point he did write some horror they, it's it's difficult to argue that it isn't because it that that um, event of, of of Gage's death has so many consequences so many so many ripples. Even the um, the driver of the truck becomes estranged from his family and eventually commits suicide, I believe. Yeah, no one, no one is untouched here. Uh, and he keeps playing the moment back. He saw yeah. his fingers. Louis saw his fingers. He saw his fingers slightly skating over the back of Gage's jacket. Then Gage's jacket had been gone. Then Gage had been gone. He looked into his coffee cup and let his wife cry beside him, uncomforted. I, I mean, he he can't reach out and, 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 and comfort because they are all just dealing with their own personal hell. 
I mean, that has to be the definition of hell. And it's all about the unnaturalness of it. It goes against the order of life. Mm. You know, we know that life is a completely unhinged, unordered thing. But as humans, we like to make sense and order. And in the order of it, no child should die before their parent. No parent should have to go through that or go through the heartache of burying their ch- their children or a, their child. Um, and King does that. And I, I kind of just almost wanted him to hop out and just fast forward to say six months later. Mm. But I know, I, I know that we're going to have to read. I knew we were going to have to read about the funeral and the burial and the days afterwards. I, I just wanted him to fast forward that, but he doesn't, you know, he really, really makes us go through that step-by-step uh, of in the immediate aftermath. In the yeah. fugue catast- catatonic state they're in, you know. And even the funeral is a bit of a horror show with uh, the, the, the fight that Lewis gets into with his father-in-law. And then they, you know, it spills over, so it knocks the 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 little coffin, yeah, off its off its stand. It just a bloody nightmare. The whole thing, yeah, it is really ugly fight that the two of them get into. Oh. It's horrible. They it's, cannot respect yeah. each other enough to sort of to not get it. All all the feelings are too raw. There's too much sadness and grief and anger there that the two of them properly um come to blows and yeah and and erwin behaves very very poorly but it's so it's so well written that you can just sort of almost see it you know playing out in front of you it's like you're a bystander even that scene at the beginning where they're all everyone's that, that you know the stupid shit that people say at funerals and each one almost strikes like a bullet all the stuff about oh god works in mysterious ways and god never gives you more than you can handle uh i'll piss off (laughs) you know you're you're doing that for your comfort rather than the other person and i understand that i'm sure everyone can relate to it and has been in those situations but that that need that human being need to go i've got to say something well actually probably the kindest thing is to just say nothing and just give that person a hug uh yeah i think more more recently that's that's become something more of an accepted option i think you know as you say traditionally and it is almost born of tradition there's this need to to say something yeah. and that's the only um sort of option that's um available in terms of um giving comfort or, or support um and it's not and I, and actually it, it, you know what do you what do you say when words are completely inadequate well as you suggest maybe nothing Maybe nothing. But um, as we know, it does get worse. I, I, you did think, how could it possibly get worse? And that has to be the Nadir, that funeral scene. And then we're going to have maybe some breathing space. Maybe a, a few rays of sunshine through the clouds. But as you say, part two, we are on a train that is just relentless and has no brakes, has no cushions, no comfy seats, no buffet, no trolley. <laughs> this is, yo. <laughs> this, this, is the, this is the Dr. Lewis Creed train. And as you say, he's removed the brakes. He threw out all the seats. He didn't pack any food. This is his damn train we're on. And, you know, weird readers can't do a damn thing about it. And it doesn't seem like anybody in the universe of the novel can do a damn thing about it either. He really is locked on this course, isn't he? Um, he sort of, he, he struggles with it a little bit. But um, at one point, 
um, in the novel, not long after the funeral, I, I, I believe, um, uh, Stephen King describes the idea to bring Gage back um, that um, that Lewis is is tossing around in his head like glamour, like a vampire's hypnosis. He's sort of seduced by this idea and um, is, is you know is transfixed by it, and um, he's he's quite hap- happy in a sense to overlook all of the really obvious arguments against it like everybody in town knows he's dead for a start what are you what is what are uh, ellie and rachel going to say when they see gage for the first time how on earth are you ever going to explain this or account for it or justify or normalize it in any way to a to a community who didn't actually attend a funeral, certainly knew about it. That's going to raise quite a few questions. How are you going to to make to make that work, Lewis? But it doesn't. That he doesn't seem to you know take any of that really on board. He doesn't seem to absorb any of it. Yeah, because he's so obliterated by his grief. That lateral thinking, that clarity of thought, that's gone. Uh, I mean, I love this description, Sai, about the grief when it hits him after he realises but none of these things happened. No, all of these things happened. It came and dissolved him, unmanned him, took away whatever defences remained. And he put his face in his hands and cried, rocking back and forth on his bed, thinking he would do anything to have a second chance, anything at all. So you're unmanned by this grief, which I think is a really um, powerful description there, powerful verb that he uses there. And he would do anything. You know, those dreams that he has of throughout the novel of, you know, going to Disney World and, and, Mm -hmm. and getting a job there. And and starting there, I think he's just going, you know what, I'll bring him back and then we'll escape. We'll go somewhere brand new. We'll reinvent ourselves. Um, yeah, that's his, um, that's his, um, his, his, his way out, isn't it? That's his, his emergency exit. As you say, what he'll do is he'll bring Gage back and then he'll just move everybody that, that you know, so he, he can start again in a new community. Nobody will know him. Nobody will know the family, um, and they'll just be able to pass Gage off as um, whatever they need to to pass him off as, as it were. Um, Because he knows, he knows from his experience with church and from what Judd has told him that... um, that, that any human being would, would come back different. Yeah. Mean, cruel spirited, evil, even. Yeah. And there's a, I, I love that passage um, where Judd comes over to speak to to Lewis, um, and you know the the chapter before um, ends with um, and Judd began to speak, and then he talks about Timmy. He talks about Timmy. Who whose body was was brought back um, from the war, from the Second World War, um, and his father had the same had the the, the same response that um, that Lewis does. That I can't I can't handle this. Not my boy. I'm going to um, uh, to take him up to the Micmac burial ground and give him a, a new lease of of life. And the description of people who see Timmy in the street is oh my. God, it's chilling because it's in it's in it's in broad daylight. His eyes, his eyes were like raisins stuck in bread dough. I saw a ghost that day, George. That's what scared me so. I never thought I'd see such a thing, but there it was. She said his eyes. She said they looked as dead and dusty as marbles. And him just sort of you know like a, a being in the street with his, his his chin jutted forward like a like a boxer ready to hit the canvas. And I thought, and that's a, a Stephen King sort of um, refers to zombies 
very shortly after. And at the time, I was thinking, my God, it's like a zombie shuffling around the town, isn't it? That's what you're going to do to Gage? Don't. <laughs> yeah. But nothing will stop him. Um, he, I, almost all of that, he, those ca those cautionary tales, all of those examples, it's, I don't think Judd has a hope in hell of changing his mind. It, I think the minute... He, his fingers don't grip Gage's back. And the minute that the accident happens, from that moment, there's only one course of action that Louis, uh, or Lewis, as we said, is, is going to take. And yeah, as you mentioned, Sai, so we had we had a little discussion, didn't we, in the first episode about pronouncing it Louis or Lewis. And we went for Louis, but yeah. you have it on good authority that actually... Uh, th th there's a Lewis is the is the right correct way to say it. Uh, is that right? That's correct. Yes, yeah. so I have actually checked in with um, an American and said, "How would you say this name?" Um, and they said, "No, that's Lewis. Um, it wouldn't be Louis, as in King Louis of France or or, or something like that. He just wouldn't quite like, okay." And to be honest, I have always heard Lewis um, in my head, even though I completely agree. Yeah. The television journalist is Louis Theroux, and his name is spelt exactly the same. I wouldn't say Louis Theroux, and yes. indeed, I don't think he would either. But we have it on good authority, so he shall now be called Louis. Um, yes, you turn if you want to, and the King Size podcasters will do that also. But yeah, he is, look, if he comes back as a zombie, so be it. He'll still be back. He'll still be back. And, and that's okay, right? We can, yes, if he's slightly different from how he was it doesn't matter he'll still be back and we can go somewhere and we can reinvent ourselves and i mean i again as as we've always said we take from a story what we bring to it and i think it does bring up those questions of you know he will be different and he will not be the gauge he was and can we still love him will we be able to love him in spite of or because of the differences and because of these needs that he's going to have. And um, I think it's a moment of just pure, pure parental love going, yep, whatever, however he comes back, I can overlook everything because he'll be back and love will conquer all. So there's something I think really beautiful about what's happening here from a parenting point of view. Uh, and there's something incredibly greedy and selfish, but Christ, who wouldn't, you know, even though you know what is stacked against you, what is coming down the road, if you could do anything to, to bring your child back. Uh, well, that's a $6 million question. Yeah. And, um, I would, um, I'd like to sort of make one point and then ask and then then ask the question, but I think you've already answered it, really. Um, and the point, or the consideration, I'd like to throw into the ring is that um, Pet Cemetery is um, a real tragedy, and one of the ingredients it has for that tragedy is that Lewis has a tragic flaw, and his flaw is his inability to let go of the past. Now, I'm not saying that you know. Being able to get over the, the death of your, your son, of your child, is something you just brush under the carpet. But we do see other bits of evidence in Lewis where he can't let go of the past, where he does hold on to grudges, where he does remember things and he, and, and he doesn't process them. Um, so there is something of that, um, that flaw there. That consideration notwithstanding, I assume that you wouldn't wrestle very long with the idea of taking one of your children up to the uh, the Micmac burial ground under these awful, awful circumstances. If it actually happened to you, would you do it? Knowing, knowing, knowing... Knowing what we know. <laughs> knowing what we know, that it's not just about having them back. They come back as malevolent. 
mean-spirited. Yeah. Um, they bring something back from the grave with them, which is truly hellish. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think, oh, I mean, it's, it's an impossible question to answer, really, but that's the the purpose of the novel that you, you, and why King is such a genius writer because you put yourselves in those situations. And I still genuinely believe you don't have to be uh, a, a parent to, 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 to have to wrestle with that. Would I do that? Would I? Um, that's the yeah. beauty of these characters that King writes. Um, oh, I mean, it's just, it's just an impossible thing. Uh, I, I, I'd like to think that I, I wouldn't because of, you know, it would actually, as we see, it, it, it he's doing it to recapture the past, to make the family whole again. But what he's actually done is he's effectively weaponized Gage. Yes. Let go of the past. I think it would be impossible to let go of it. I think I could easily see him and relate to just being stuck in that loop again. Again, again, chapter 40, where the whole thing, none of these things happened. That would be, that would be the loop, the living hell uh, that uh, I think I would be trapped in. It's probably wrong to believe that there can be any limit to the horror which the human mind can experience. And that's what this novel is about, especially this section. There is no limit to that grief. And as you say, it is a tragedy. It is a tragedy up there with King Lear, Macbeth, in all the classic tragic works of art. Yeah, you have a good a good central character um, who, you know, he's not perfect. They have a, a tragic flaw in one respect or another. And ultimately, it gets the better of them. They are they are drawn to it. They they act on it. Yeah, they use it as the cornerstone um, of their behaviour, and Lewis cannot put things in the past. He can't sort of reframe or re-understand the past. It still, it still haunts him. Yes, I am. Um, I, I really got a sense of um, well, eleven twenty-two sixty-three a little bit in this. I don't know about you, but the, there are things like. Um, Irwin's phone call to Lewis, where he apologizes for his behavior at the um at the funeral and saying, you know, you should you should come with um with Rachel and Ellie. You know, don't don't be there on your own. You 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 should come. And he it really feels to me like, although I do feel that, you know, Irwin is a bit of an unpleasant character, I think largely because we see it from Lewis's perspective. Um, I still feel that Erwin is trying to offer an olive branch, but it's a moment like that, which is sort of the university's last ditch attempt to stop Lewis from doing what he's about to do. And it feels like similarly to 112263 that the university is trying to push back against this intention. Did, did you get that feel? Absolutely. So much so that in my notes, I have. <laughs> the universe conspiring to stop man meddling. Eleven twenty two sixty three vibes. <laughs> and there you have it. Here is that opportunity, and it's a real sliding doors moment. That it, it's such a powerful moment. He's there at the airport. The olive branch has been offered. Yeah, and instead, you know, it says he could have come but he preferred to send his father-in-law, his grandchildren, his daughter, and a message. Mm. And it goes back to that point that you mentioned that he refuses to let the past be buried. He refuses to move on with his life. And this is that moment, the universe going, there's this fork in the road, come down this path. He's mm. like, no, I cannot do it. He's obsessed in the same way that when this happened, you know, and church died on his watch. It's like, a replay of that moment, but with much bigger consequences, because we know he's about to try and bring Gage back. Um, he cannot let go of the past. And interestingly, this novel is about characters that can't do that because he's not alone in that. Rachel, 
Rachel mm-hmm. can't let go of the past at all. You know, what happened to her in her childhood, the trauma of looking after her sister, the day she died on her watch. The, the impact of that means that she is so emotionally um, paralyzed by what has happened that obviously she refuses to talk about death or illness. She's completely anchored to the past as well. And we see that this is a novel about the inability to let go of the past and the huge consequences that come with it. And so very 11-22-63, again, a theme that just goes through so many of his stories, meddling with the past and the universe going, no, no, no. You know, even as we see in this desperate race as the plan is put into motion later on in the novel of, you know, Rachel trying to come back to rescue once you realise what is happening. And all these little things just going wrong, like, you know, not having the money or the gas running out or not quite being fast enough. And Judd, who should be keeping watch and staying awake, suddenly getting overcome by this paralyzing tiredness. Mm. Again, at exactly the wrong moment, because, as you know, you can't fight the universe. It's got other ideas. So, yeah, you're spot on the money there, my friend, for sure. Yes, I found that very tense. That that um, that section where Rachel is um, trying to get back in time because she knows something is wrong. It's like Dick Hallorahan in um, in The Shining, um, trying to get. He knows something's wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, man. He knows something's wrong, doesn't he? He can't put his finger on it. He knows in his in his in, in his bones that something's not right, and he and he needs to go back. Um, yes. But I have to that point, Sai, again, this race at the end, and it's a race, has elements of Dick's mission at the end of The Shining. (laughs) Yeah, something is wrong and they know it, but something is trying to keep her from getting to Ludlow tonight. Something is conspiring to stop yeah, you know, to, to stop. It's like, look, OK, I gave you a chance. You decided to go down this road, Lewis. You've now condemned the family. And sorry, there ain't no going back now. A couple of lovely little details I love in, in that section. One is the um, the, road, the road sign she passes that invites her to come and spend a night and sleep in Jerusalem's lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll keep going, actually. I don't know why, but I think I might. I think I'll keep going the cafe that she finally stops in a, and, and has something to eat in um, and get lo- gets lots of coffee before she actually falls asleep at the wheel and it looks like she's veering over into the road at one point or another. Rachel had three cups, one after another, like medicine, black, sweetened, with a lot of sugar. A few truckers sat at the counter or in booth, kidding the waitresses, who somehow all managed to look like tired nurses filled with bad news under those fluorescents burning in the night's little hours. Tired nurses carrying bad news. Oh, yes, that's such an appropriate... Yeah. ...too. Yeah. And they all know something is wrong. I mean, Irwin, there's no bravado or games. Later on, he says, doesn't he, I'm scared. Mm. No. And the fact that it's him saying it, as we know, he's horrible character but he does offer the olive branch and clearly realizes what happened at the funeral which is such a that that scene is seared on my memory forever yes yes um and when he actually says like i'm scared something is happening here we all know it it just shows this sixth sense they're not don't have to actually be in ludlow they just know that something is afoot. And I think for me, one of the most heartbreaking and poignant details comes from something that Rachel mentions not long after the, the funeral, when ironically she, she's trying to um, impose some, some sense of normality back, back on herself to try and get away, at least get some break from the, from the reality that, um, that she has. I know, she said, it just... Hits you all over the place. I moved the couch while you were in banger. I thought running the vacuum around would take my mind off off things. And I found four of his little matchbox cars under there. 
as if they were waiting for him to come back and and you know play with them. Oh, 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 no. She was oh. just doing the vacuuming. She found four of his tiny little matchbox. Oh, I used to have matchbox cars. <sighs> oh, oh, come on, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are the details that just rip your heart out. Oh, it's even now, even now, it's still so well pitched. You can see why he was too, you know, um, so reticent to re- to releasing. Why he thought it was too scary because it hits a bit too bloody close to home. And I think what's different um, from when he kills his darlings and you know that constant thing of Stephen, why did you have to kill the kid <laughs> when it happens in Cujo? Yes, it's it, it, it's towards the end of the novel. So hmm. or, or, as the reader. I felt I was spared a little bit. Yeah, it was horrific what happens, but I felt, well, this is what has to happen. But it's towards the final section of the novel. So you don't have to spend too much time in the aftermath of it. Mm, mm. Uh, whereas with, with this novel, it, it, it hovers over the whole of the first part. And then obviously the whole of the second part is about the aftermath and 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 you are expected and you as the reader have a ringside seat in an everyday tragedy and horror that really feels very personal and very traumatic and it feels it feels like almost shouldn't be reading it shouldn't be seeing it uh and that's the visceral power of this novel and i agree i think that's why I don't think it was just hyperbole or a clever mar- marketing or publishing stunt to say this is the book that almost is too scary to publish. Scary working on and horrific working on so many layers and levels here. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I think that's a very it's a very good point as you say when Tad Trenton dies at the end of Cujo it happens pretty much at the end of of Cujo you say you don't have to spend much time with it um that story is is pretty much um it's almost in its epilogue when that happens um i mean it's not to say that it doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks but you then don't you know have the rest of or a lot of the rest of the book to um to to spend with it whereas as you point out in pet cemetery there's still a lot more um time that you're going to spend with um with lewis and and with with rachel and with judd um living with it or 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 trying to live with it because ultimately lewis can't live with it yeah and that's where he comes unstuck um and and it does end up of course as it does in um tragedies destroying their entire world everything is destroyed because of this and in the end as with um as with timmy um he has to put gage down so it kind of like he has you know he has to kill him again yeah yeah and he's had we talk about the past repeating itself i mean it happens within the novel We've had the dress rehearsal with Church. Yes. <laughs> that hot eddy of uh, water, that, oh. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't even need it just to be Judd saying, look, <laughs> let me tell you about little Timmy. <laughs> it's like he's seen it and felt it with his own eyes. He knows what happens when they come back. But that warning is not enough because he's trying to piece back together this broken family. Uh, and and I think he blames himself. If only I'd been that quick, that moment f- quicker. If only I'd been stronger. If only I had longer arms. If only I'd had longer fingers. Uh, yeah, I because I, I was so close. I physically brushed. That's the detail I can't get past. Side mm-hmm. keep that haunts mm-hmm. me. Haunts mm-hmm. me that the fact that it he was there and he he nearly had it. He nearly had it. That's the fragility of life. Um, so he can't get past that. And so he will carry that guilt and that blame. So all of these actions, even though he knows the side effects come from this desire to, uh, of love 
and to try and piece together his family. And he's like, look, even if it's a Frankenstein's monster patchwork of Gage and a Frankenstein's monster of a family, I'm still going to go for that. Yeah, it still seems like the more attractive proposition. Until it isn't. Because there's not just the um the you know the proposition of having to get um gage up to the uh, the micmac burial ground he's got the whole section where he has to creep around in the middle of the night like some criminal um which essentially he is in this um in this event and um exhume gage's body it's it's really tense and almost exhausting to read because you feel Lewis's exhaustion and his yeah. his injuries and um and, and everything. Oh my god, even getting Gage out Gage's body out of the funeral out of the um out of the uh, the graveyard. Oh yeah. And there is something, I don't know if it's just my sixth sense of humor or me trying to find something okay. that was um akin to a ray of light. I did find elements of that section in the graveyard mm. the exhumation darkly comic just in the fact that you know the amount he keeps injuring himself and keeps falling off and falling out of trees and again even then it's the universe going look this isn't going to be easy and we're going to do everything we can to exhaust you and make you go oh what am i doing oh just pack up and go home but he is a man on a mission but there's something horribly darkly comic about that um yeah the number somebody slips and falls over and, yeah um he drops something or he's he got his knee over up this fence and, and it's like how do i do that and yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and, you know and, and i think there's a couple that walk past at one stage and then there's a car and you know all of these near misses that any of them if they just come if he falls even harder and then he can't you know he really busts his knee it's enough to put pay to it. And then, you know, but it's, he's able to just get away with every moment. Um, and that very striking image of the fact that Gage, uh, he doesn't, his, his body, it, it's too big to fit, I think, in the boot. So he ends up as a, as a passenger, doesn't he? Lewis puts him in the car, but then he can't work out, is he facing the right way? Or is is he strapped in, looking backwards? Um, what a dark passenger he's got with him there. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's like, yeah, it's just a. Oh, there's no, there's nothing graceful about it, which is fair enough because he is, you know, grave robbing. Uh, but yeah. it's so messy and clumsy and heavy and blood, sweat and tears. And you go, well, this is a marker for how everything's going to go from now, man. Yeah, nothing is going right. And as yeah. well, nothing, well, no, let me rephrase. That's not entirely fair. Nothing is going smoothly. You know, as you say, there are all these, all these obstacles, all these problems. I wonder why. But as you say, Lewis is just too determined he really, he's, once he's set his mind to this and he's and he's been seduced by it because he's been able to sort of, you know, sh to shut out, you know, all, all of the warnings. As you can see, as, as you say, he can imagine um, a universe in which he can, in fact, make it work. Um, and, 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 and he's so, he's so hurt and he's so... Um, grief-stricken and unable to, to to process it. And as you say, Rachel's experiences, whilst being absolutely not her fault, aren't helping. They're not the best circumstances to sort of help to help him, help them as a family d deal with this because Rachel's has been so traumatised herself um, uh, by the death of um, her sister Zelda. Yeah. It's just... It's just the worst recipe, but oh, yeah. uh, but but the worst recipe for the best story. You know the best yeah. kind. Of, you know, um, yeah, chilling, um, engaging story. Yeah, 
and, and, and a complete we've spoken in that in episode one where we look at part one about the domesticity there's passages that are just idyllic you know, amongst even the monster trucks racing by and the sense of foreboding there's this lovely little family and this you know lovely warm old timer in judd and his wife and this real domesticity that then just gets ripped apart and no one acts with any rationality or logic in this part two and quite right because you don't when you're blinded by grief when you are grief struck uh you're not thinking straight and I love how King shows us that these characters, they're not. And then actually, almost through Lewis's inability to, 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 to step off the path of what he's doing, it forces Rachel, I think, to break her chains with the past because mm -hmm. of Lewis, you know, she has to go, hang on a minute. No, I need to now look death squarely in the face. And because I know something is wrong and I have to, I have to take action. And again, he puts her in such an extreme situation. She's only just arrived at her parents mm -hmm. and she's going on a gut and on a feeling and on something with her daughter, you know, but how easy would it be to, just go, oh, no, I'm probably just not thinking straight and everything's up in the air and, of course, I'm going to have a strange feeling. But she acts on it. But, again, all in vain because, unfortunately, at this stage, it's just all heading to this inevitable shit show. Mm. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way to pretty this up. It is... It is that. It yeah. is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a... Proper fecal picnic, ain't it? It's so... Yeah, the gauge that comes back. It's like some twisted, foul spirit has, has inha inhabited the body of gauge, and that's what's emerged from the grave. And... Yeah, it's... Uh, it's not gauge at all. He doesn't have his no. son. no. And it, it's quite cool, the little moment where Gage and Church team up. <laughs> and, you know, they, ha they are this dreadful tag team. And they know that Judd is keeping watch. And he's there. He's meant to be keeping watch. Uh, and he's an obstacle in, mm. in their way. Um, and there's only one thing that they can do. But they it's this double hander between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, as you you, you said, um, you, you mentioned earlier about about church, you know, still being around. And there was one section after the after the funeral, um, when you know Lewis is at home trying to, you know, trying to not go insane. Lewis brought up a case of beer and shoved the cans into the fridge. Then he took out one can, closed the fridge door, and opened it. Church came oiling slowly and rustily out of the pantry at the sound of the refrigerator door and stared inquiringly up at Lewis. He did not come too close. Lewis had perhaps kicked him too many times. But that, that image of, uh, of Church oiling in, I found quite unpleasant. Yes. And Judd says, you know, when he wakes up with that shock, he says, remember, it ain't a kid. It may scream or something when it sees you've got its number. It may cry, but you ain't going to be fooled. You've been fooled too many times already, old man. This is your last chance. And he, I think at this stage, represents the best chance of the day being saved because it's not his, he doesn't share the same blood as Gage. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. not a parent. Yes, he's fond of that family and fond of that kid when he was alive. But he's like, right. It's almost like a metaphorical. I think he does actually, when he comes to, slaps his face a few times. Go, right, come on. You remember what this is. This isn't human. Because, as we know, Rachel is powerless to do that. 
Yes. Because that's his mum. She gave birth to him. So, you know, when she sees Gage, it's not Gage. We know that. But she just, yeah, you can't fight that. She's just completely, she doesn't stand a chance. No, she was almost sort of paralysed in the same way that Lewis would be. Yeah. To do anything. Um, There would still be that, um, that, 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 that instinct. Um, It's like the end of the Omen. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, at At the end of the Omen, there's this moment that saves Damien's life where Robert Thorne is about to bring the knife down into Damien and Damien turns and says, Daddy, don't. And it's just that moment of, of innocence and, and Thorne can be persuaded that actually oh, perhaps it is a child and that's just the moment that, that Damien needs to, to, to buy him the time so the police shoot him. And exactly the same thing is true of Gage um, with Lewis and, and Rachel. They can't because they still see the son, that they feel, I think, particularly in Lewis's case, so overwhelmingly guilty that they lost. Because, as you say, they were so, Lewis was so close. You know, so close. If I'd just been... Oh, that's, that's the thing. And, and King knows that. Because that, yeah. that's the thing. It's, it's you know, the what-if underlined. If this had happened and, uh, you know, uh, Lewis hadn't been around or he'd heard about it at third hand, it's a different story then. It's the fact that he was so close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is just that that's what drives you mad. Um, nice little detail about when Lewis comes back. It says Lewis paused on the soft shoulder to let an Orinco truck loaded with chemical fertilizer blast by him. Mm. Then he crossed the street to Judd's house. Uh, these trucks that just roar past, almost personified, they're they're still there. They're always there. Just King reminding us, this is just, this is going to keep happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad spot, actually. Yeah. What seemed maybe idyllic and pleasant and sunlit and dapples and it's quite the opposite, actually. King writes, perhaps sometimes dead is better is grief's last lesson. The one we get to when we finally tire of jumping up and down on the plastic blisters and crying out for God to get his own cat or his own child and leave ours alone. That lesson suggests that in the end, we can only find peace in our human lives by accepting the will of the universe. That may sound like corny new age crap, but the alternative looks to me like a darkness too awful for mortal creatures as us to bear. The English language has no word for this. So if you um, if you are a child and your parents have passed away, you're an orphan. If you are a husband and your wife has passed away, you're a widower. If you're a wife and your husband has passed away, you are a widow. We have no word in the English language for a parent who has lost a child or their children. There is something something about it that we don't dare name. It's like Lord Voldemort. It's like, don't say his name. If you don't say his name, it doesn't actually exist. Or we can pretend that it, convincingly, that it doesn't exist. There are some things, some human experiences that go, you know what, this is, this is so unthinkable, so horrific. We don't even want to make it in any way common or normal by giving it, a, by articulating it. I think it's worth going back to Stephen King's own words to sort of say what he he said about this book in um, um, in reflection. Uh, Doubleday, who was the um, uh, the publisher at the time, they asked for two novels. King countered by offering one. However, the only manuscript available was Pet Cemetery. After making sure his wife didn't object, he gave it to them, but refu- but refused to promote it. In a 1985 interview, he said, if I had my way about it, I would still not have published Pet Cemetery. I don't like it. It's a terrible book. Not in terms of the writing, but it just spirals down into darkness. It seems to be saying nothing works and nothing is worth, worth it. And I don't really believe that. 
Pet cemetery is supposed to be a reflection on what happens when people in a materialistic society, people who only live for materialistic reasons, come into contact with questions of faith and death and outside forces, as he told Doug Winter. This is a very Christian book in that sense, because it is a book about what happens when you attempt miracles without informing them with any sense of real soul. When you attempt mechanistic miracles, abracadabra, pigeon and pie, the monkey's paw, you destroy everything. And that's quoting the essay, A Man's Heart is Stonia by Bev Vincent, which you can find on the Stephen King Revisited website. And as a, as a, as a, as a fabulous essay. And I do like uh, what Stephen King says there about when you attempt these mir- miracles without any any real soul, in a, in, in a sense. Now, I'm not saying that Lewis isn't, you know, emotional, but he, he is very sort of, I will take my son up there and he will be reborn and everything will be well. And, it's, and, it, and it ain't like that. And Lewis knows that. The last thing I'd like to say um, is to quote a little line from A Stony Heart by Stuart O'Nan. I'd love to read the whole essay, but I'd be depriving you of a very, very good uh, response to this novel. But all I will say is this. Love doesn't save us. In fact, it damns us. Yokes us to unending pain. Darling, it said, and they lived unhappily ever after. Pretty scary, kids. King Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at Kingsize Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.